You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. In today's episode, you will hear a follow-on discussion between myself, Andy Weber, and Ron Pfizer about the definition of weapons of mass destruction. Does the definition help or hinder us? Should we consider other technologies and scenarios beyond nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons with the potential for mass effects as part of any effort to reboot the strategy to combat WMD that was first issued in 2002? Please join us for, I think, what will be a really fascinating conversation. If you're interested in going in depth on this topic, I've written a three-part briefer exploring whether we should move beyond the WMD paradigm. As of the release of this episode, all three briefers are now published on the CSR website. I'll definitely link to the briefers in the show notes. Let's go to the interview. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajima. I'm the director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. Today, we're continuing a discussion with Ron Pfizer and Andy Weber to help advise the new administration about next steps in countering WMD and other weapons of mass effect. Ron Pfizer is a retired U.S. Army Colonel and fellow at LMI. He served in the force for 30 years in various command, staff, and leadership positions across the Army, Joint Staff, and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Andy Weber is a senior fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. He is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs and has spent decades working to reduce the risk of WMD. Ron, Andy, welcome back to On the Verge. Thank you, Natasha. Thanks, Natasha. So last time we talked about whether the Biden administration should reboot the countering WMD strategy from 2002. We mentioned a few technologies and scenarios that are not considered weapons of mass destruction. And so today we're gonna take the conversation beyond WMD to consider whether other technologies and scenarios should be considered within the context of a national strategy to counter WMD. And I thought we'd start off with a brief conversation about definitions. I've written a series of briefers and kind of looked at the origin of the term WMD And for those of you who don't know it originally during a specific historical context during the first two world wars in the early 1900s. In 1948, the United Nations Commission on the Conventional Armaments defined WMD for the first time. They defined it as atomic explosive weapons, radioactive material weapons, lethal chemical and biological weapons, and any weapons developed in the future which have characteristics comparable in destructive effect to those of the atomic bomb or other weapons mentioned above. So as you hear, the UN definition was intended to be broad enough to allow for consideration of new weapons um, with similar characteristics. But in the US, the definition has, has been narrowly drawn to mean in most cases, nuclear, biological and chemical weapons. 
some cases radiological, but not in all. And the boundaries are so narrow that things like fentanyls and even diseases like the novel coronavirus would not technically qualify as WMD under US laws, at least as it's currently um, scoped. So my first question to both of you is, does the narrow definition of WMD hurt us? So Natasha, great point. And, and thanks for bringing in that historical context, because I think if we go back and look at how things have evolved, we've had terms uh, that were broadly defined, such as weapons of mass destruction. We've used terminology such as nuclear, chemical and biological defense, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear, and even included explosives. And even that's another uh, contentious debate. And I, I think from my perspective, one of the big challenges we have today is not necessarily the definition of weapons of mass destruction, but the fact that it's used in many cases with in place of other uh, more precise terms. So when we talk about the weapons of mass destruction community, even in the US context, um, as you pointed out, there are things that in justice would not necessarily be considered, but within defense, uh, or at least within defense doctrine would. Um, but I also think that the term is loosely used and it's substituted for when we really are talking about a nuclear, uh, offensive nuclear threat um, versus a um, emerging chemical threat. We throw the term WMD in there and it's never really defined in the rest of the conversation. So it either creates um, a misunderstanding of what are we really talking about or I think it also further divides the community because they feel like they're not being heard when you talk about those areas that make this a very complex um, and dynamic environment. And then we add the complexity of we're not using language that allows people to precisely respond to the conversation that we're having at the time. Well, just to add, I mean, I'm comfortable with the term uh, WMD and, and I think um, there are certainly new technologies that could be uh, included in that basket. Um, but my Twitter handle is Andy Weber NCB and nuclear chemical and biological. And I, when I served uh, uh, as ASD NCB uh, in the Pentagon, um, having that luxury of focus um, only working on nuclear, chemical, and biological uh, weapons issues actually was, was helpful in some ways. Uh, for example, the, the ability to focus starting in 2011 on the Syria chemical weapons uh, threat allowed us to do big things. Um, um, and it was because we, we, we had that somewhat narrow, but I would say there's, there's a lot that you can do um, in just the NCB realm. And the overlap, uh, you, you mentioned uh, coronavirus not being uh, a weapon of mass destruction. Well, it definitely needs to be included now on the list of potential uh, biological weapons because we've seen the effects um, and with functional genomics um, and the ability to edit genes, it could be further enhanced to increase its lethality, for example. It already has pretty darn good transmissibility which is another uh, attribute uh, of a good biological weapon. Um, so, so we need to be flexible in how we apply this. And, and I'd like to talk more about your example of fentanyls. But to me, when I served in the Pentagon as ASDNCB, we uh, included fentanyls uh, uh, as a chemical weapon uh, because it is. And uh, you know, a sugar packet uh, contains 84,000 lethal doses. 
if that's not a weapon of mass destruction, I don't know what is. Thanks. You raised some really great points. Ron, I think you're exactly right. I think we we throw around the term WMD very loosely and that that harms, you know, the conversation. I think, Andy, you also mentioned on the last episode that, you know, WMD lumping nuclear, biological and chemical weapons under the, the, the umbrella of WMD is not helpful. You know, there's such complex and diverse threats um, based on different technical um, considerations and but you're still comfortable with WMDs. I guess I grew up, I grew up with it. You know, I'm, I'm an old timer. I I spent uh, decades uh, uh, with that rubric, but, but that said, said, I I do try to think about it broadly and especially in the, in the example of biological weapons, we need to um, not just uh, have, you know, go by a list of threat agents that have been developed as biological weapons, but think about, uh, and potential pandemic pathogens in that same basket, because that's uh, uh, the preparedness um, that we need uh, is dual purpose for both. Yeah, Andy, I think great points. And Natasha, I'm glad we've kind of talked through this a little bit, because I think this also highlights the, the need for strategies that actually have precise uh, focused implementation plans or action plans that go with them. Because I think as a umbrella term or a strategic term, if we get what's right inside of WMD as a definition, that's helpful. And we can have uh, goals for our nation and even for uh, like-minded nations related to that. But I think to Andy's point and the experience I've had as well is when you have organizations that are able to focus on the components of that, but then integrate to, to achieve those goals, we can make a lot of progress if it's not clear of how individuals contribute to each of those parts. And we're just trying to figure out, are we really nuke chem bio? Are we WMD? Are we CBRN? Are we COBRA? All those other tomes, the, you know, the, the challenge of getting uh, activity to move forward is lost or is made greater because now we're just trying to figure out, do we have the right definitions? And I think that's why this part of the segment is so important that we do get the definitions right, but we realize that in uh, execution, we need to be able to apply those precisely and put people on point for certain aspects of the components of a, a uh, WMD problem. I think I, I agree 100% that if, if WMD helps us focus, then I'm not against it. My issue with is that I've seen silos of excellence grow all, around the issue of WMD. And when I tried for many years to talk about the potential impact of emerging technologies, the, the impact of the digital revolution potentially on weapons of mass destruction. Oh, please don't muddy the waters. That's not our space. Let's keep, let's stay in our nice, like comfortable silo. So I think I, I'm inclined to agree with you. If it can help focus the effort, you know, maybe maybe NCB doesn't need to take on, you know, drones and other issues. But if if it if it, you know, prevents us from talking across the issues and and opening up those apertures to consider other threats, our, our adversaries are not going to think about mass effect and say, well, I'm just going to do NCB because that's the way the DOD is organized. I'm not going to think about drones, you know, they're, they're going to think about the opportunities in front of them. And so let's shift the conversation a little bit to looking at the, the capability to produce strategic effects. When you, when you read about emerging technologies, you get the impression that the world is ending. Um, we have so many more scenarios that could generate mass effect. Um, 
do you both see us as having more potentially destructive scenarios than we've seen before, more types, more scenarios, more technologies? I would say absolutely. Um, in particular for me, it's, it's the increased number of potentially users of these capabilities. Um, you know, the democratization of weapons of mass destruction, that is, that is new and uh, increasing um, as these technologies become more available, uh, easier to use, easier to deliver. You mentioned drones. Um, just the uh, off-the-shelf commercial drones can deliver a lot of these uh, um, potential weapons of mass destruction. So uh, that, to me, is a problem. It's no longer the monopoly of uh, the way nuclear weapons is of governments and, and militaries, and in the case of nuclear, just a few governments. Uh, it's becoming uh, accessible to any country that wants it, uh, as well as uh, uh, subnational groups, uh, non-state actors, and that's very concerning. Andy, I completely agree, and I think that uh, you know Natasha, you're highlighting of the definition that was really penned in the the late '40s. Looked at this from the standpoint of really mass destruction. And that was on the heels of both of those world wars where we saw hundreds of thousands of casualties um, directly related to battlefield injuries. We saw millions of people that were uh, that that died as a result of either the effects of war or the actions that were taken during those wars. So now we're at the point where technology is making those things of making these weapons available and maybe the number of casualties will not be as high. But as we've seen with the coronavirus, uh, even with the events in Salisbury, it wasn't limited to just the two individuals that were targeted. You know, an entire town was shut down. Millions of dollars was spent trying to remediate that. Um, it consumed medical care that would have been available to others in that region had they not had to isolate that medical facility for that period of time. I think that is what makes it so challenging. And I think along with that, access to these materials, I think it also becomes very difficult to control um, or target the uh, repercussions if you choose to use these, because um, how do you chase down everyone who can get access to this and uh, potentially trigger an event? And the technology is not going to stop. So drones weren't available to everybody 15 or 20 years ago. Now they are. Um, Synthetic biology is making things easier. And as Andy mentioned in the last episode, sometimes you don't even have to have a degree in any of the science to get this stuff. You just have to go and find somebody who's willing to make it for you and ship it to you. So all those things I think lead to that it will become a bigger and bigger or more likely problem. Potentially the consequences in numbers of people killed or directly injured are lower, but in the panic and the um, procedures to response, many, many more people will be affected even if they are the worried well. And I think that's the other thing that's disconcerting to me is how do we maintain that edge to, to prevent it from happening and have to deal with the second and third order effects of an event, even if it's not a loss of life or loss of limb? Well, I, I just think, thinking about this, it's also um, how we think about, about national security that needs to be uh, broader. Um, you know, traditionally, the, the, for example, the DOD Chem Biodefense Program, the goal of that program, the mission of that program traditionally has been to 
enable our soldiers to carry on their conventional warfare activities in a contaminated environment. And I think that's a 20th century mission um, and, and it's way too narrow. I think the mission of the Department of Defense in this area should be to deter, and, and, and I, I believe in, in deterrence through denial by preparedness. In other words, to have defenses against these types of weapons that are so good that our adversaries won't think they'll be effective and, and will pursue something else. But that should be the mission, not to keep our uh, kinetic activities going um, as more of a support function, but actually preventing countries from developing, stockpiling, or using uh, chemical weapons, biological weapons, um, and nuclear weapons, I think, need to be dealt with as a, as a separate issue because they are so distinct. You know, it's interesting um, that you said, Ron, you know, talking about what mass destruction coming out of the two world wars and how, you know, one of the, my puzzles in the last three decades is that we, we haven't seen that. In fact, we've seen, and I think Andy, you mentioned last um, time, this new phenomenon of states using chemical agents in peacetime for assassination. And this is not envisioned by the concept, the, the original concept of weapons of mass destruction. The idea was that actors would be motivated to achieve mass destruction. And we also talked a little bit about how even when they're used as assassination tools, they still have strategic effects. Ron, you said that because they enter into the national and international calculations, that they, they do still exert strategic effects. And so I'd like to turn the discussion to looking at other potential technologies and scenarios that may have that the same kind of strategic effects as WMD. And we've talked about fentanyls, but I'd really like to throw out fentanyls. You know, why, you know, Andy, you said DOD already considers fentanyls a WMD. What, what's the controversy here? To, to, to be honest, I don't understand it because for, for me, it's an open and shut case. Um, but I think there's controversy from the uh, uh, Department of Justice and law enforcement, FBI, especially side that that they don't want you know every every drug dealer who's selling fentanyl on the street to be accused you know charged with uh, WMD crimes. Um, you know that makes sense to me. Um, but the same materials can be used for mass attacks, mass casualty attacks, and so we need to deal with it um, in a way that um, prevents large amounts of, of uh, these chemical weapons coming into the country, uh, period. And we need to deal with the opioid crisis from a public health perspective. So it's not only a WMD, but it is a WMD. Andy, great points. And I think from the standpoint of DOD, the debate that continues to occur of whether it is or is not a weapon of mass destruction really has to do with um, contextualizing it in a 21st century manner. So we talked a lot about the 20th century view of, and I think Andy, you're right on about how we no longer need to focus on just uh, protecting the force and allowing it to fight in this environment that we really need to, and I agree wholeheartedly that we need to up our deterrence game to the point where we help take these things off the table, not because we can control them, but because there's no value in investing in them. 
But to do that, we also have to recognize that in military operations, they don't start once we've massed everything at a line of departure and is ready to cross like we did in the first Gulf War, the border and uh, take back the territory of Kuwait and restore that country. That's large scale combat operations, but we're executing um, operations every day. And that's part of the deterrence calculus, but it's also part of recognizing that each one of these small scale events could have a strategic effect and um, impact our ability to achieve our objectives on a day-to-day -day basis uh, around the globe and, it, and at home. And I think that's where some of the military um, scenarios and evaluation of, you know, what is the impact of this um, needs to be revisited. And, and in some cases really looked at more uh, holistically about what happens if we see these things used to impact a military decision that then goes back to uh, Andy's point of a national security decision that can or cannot be executed because we lost an asset even for 24 or 48 hours that lost the initiative to influence an operation or in, ca in case of deterrence, reinforce an ally's willingness to, to stay the course in an operation and be supportive of achieving a, a common national or international objective. Ron is such a great thinker. Um, I, I, I really love his, his way of framing these issues. Um, getting back to fentanyls, I'm reminded of a briefing um, that I had uh, uh, when I was serving in the Pentagon. Uh, one of the smartest people in this field, uh, Eric Moore, uh, came to brief me on what we then called incapacitating agents. And, you know, it was mostly a briefing on, on fentanyls as chemical weapons. And I said, Eric, what, why do we call these incapacitating agents? Because well, the Moscow theater siege, over 100 people were killed um, in, in that event. So if the dose is higher, they, they don't just incapacitate you, they cause death. And he said, well, that's a good point, sir. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we changed the name um, on the spot. In fact, I asked him uh, at the same meeting, well, what do you think we should call them if incapacitating agents doesn't um, fully describe what they're capable of doing? He said, and he's a think on his feet kind of person. He just, uh, on the spur of the moment, said, well, how about pharmaceutical-based agents, PBAs? And that's what we call it. We've called them ever since. But... Um, it was just a reminder that, yes, uh, uh, fentanyls or tranquilizers, they put people to sleep, but if the dose is high enough, they kill you. So they're not, they're not incapacitants. So let's um, shift the conversation to drones. We mentioned them briefly on the last episode. Um, I've run a number of pieces lately that want some, some want to include drones as a weapon of mass destruction. I just wish that we would think about drones. <laughs> we don't necessarily have to include them as a WMD, um, but you know, they're delivery systems. They could be more than that. Um, what do you guys think about drones as weapons of mass effect? So Natasha, I would say that um, from my perspective, they definitely are, especially when you look at just the, the peaceful use and then apply a little bit of nefarious thought. I mean, we've all seen the, the drone shows at, you know, big events to include the Olympics and the ability to create a swarm that entertains you. Um, and we know that there's military planning and we recognize that something like that could disrupt military operations. But um, we haven't really seen it materialize to a large scale effect. 
but again, as, as I mentioned, drones are not something that has been ubiquitous for the last 15 or 20 years. They're gaining in their popularity. Um, and I think it also is, um, there's been enough examples around the world where we've seen small scale battlefield use uh, along with the larger, uh, more traditional use of drones that the space is wide open. Uh, I think that's part of the challenge of whether it's included in a weapons of mass destruction or effect definition and strategy. It certainly has to be considered just like we talked in last episode of, it's a delivery system on its own. So it could be combined with those weapons. Um, and it has the ability to be employed uh, individually or in large pairs to achieve an effect without the use of those chemical weapons or biological weapons. So now we've got that challenge of we can provide an effective deterrence against the chembio use and take delivery of that off the table, but you haven't taken off the table the use of drones to achieve an effect to knock out communications, um, which then potentially degrade your ability to, again, execute the rest of your operation. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to defeat the uh, military organization that's executing the mission. It just has to affect them long enough so that other uh, systems can be employed at that time to deny them the ability to, to execute the mission they've been given. We should absolutely be concerned about, about drones, um, both as delivery vehicles for, uh, for chemical weapons, for biological weapons, because they're so well um, uh, adapted for those uses. But swarms of drones obviously are, are something that we, we're developing um, and other countries are developing. They were used to great effect by Azerbaijan in its recent conflict with Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and Armenia. Um, so they have changed, changed warfare. One specific thing, um, I, I, I wanna keep nuclear weapons off of drones. I think it's an easy arms control win to uh, have an agreement that uh, no country will put a nuclear weapon on a drone. Um, and then I would like to expand that to include cruise missiles, uh, because I think there's this real risk of blurring the line between conventional warfare and nuclear warfare with these middle systems that, that are used for conventional purposes, but potentially also for carrying nuclear weapons. No, I think that's a great point. Would you include underwater drones in that equation? Underwater drones that could carry nuclear weapons? I would absolutely, and um, it it would capture the the Russian Poseidon um, uh, underwater drone um, or underwater cruise missile. Call it whatever you want. I don't want that weapon in use. I think we should include that in the New START Treaty follow-on negotiation but not just bilaterally, we should make sure that no country develops such a capability. Okay, let's turn to the last technology, um, cyber weapons. Um, should we consider them as part of a countering WD strategy? Are they weapons of mass destruction? Are, are they strategic? Do they have strategic effects? To what degree should we think about them? So Natasha, I think we absolutely must consider them as part of a strategy because it's part of the reality of the operating environment that we live in today and will live in for the foreseeable future. Um, I think that while they may not be tied directly to the use of a chemical or biological agent, uh, they can complement the actual use. And so you can see um, cyber technology that potentially could uh, take out a um, emergency notification system in the midst of an event 
um, and complicate the response. Therefore, expanding what may have been a, a smaller scale release to have a larger effect. Um, I think the other thing that we need to be concerned about, and we've seen this happen with um, just not necessarily nefarious events, but um, disruption to safety systems or control systems uh, where there are uh, chemical materials stored and the release into, you know, of a, at a water drinking water plant, what happens if we have too much chlorine that's released into there or the, the water treatment system doesn't function and now we have E. coli that was supposed to be treated that's now in the system. Uh, maybe not lethal effects, uh, but those certainly are indicators of what, where there are vulnerabilities. And when you combine cyber technology with, with the chemical and biological weapons, or even without them, with just the environment that we live in, um, I think it definitely is a concern. And we need to make sure that we're accounting for the intersection of where those technologies, where cyber technologies and chemical or biological weapons or the materials that uh, exist around us in a regular um, peaceful environment could potentially now become uh, the weapon that they never had because they're able to use the cyber technology to unlock and release uh, you know, a, a harmful chemical or a biological agent into the environment. And I, I do worry about cyber weapons with physical effects, you know, taking out a dam or a nuclear power plant. Um, that is something we should be concerned about. Also, what's so pernicious about cyber weapons is that countries are using them in peacetime. And that could escalate quickly and badly. Um, so part of this de-blurring um, between war and peace, or you know, the Russians call it hybrid war, um, that is allowing offensive cyber operations to occur on a fairly routine basis, it's a very, very dangerous trend that could quickly escalate to hot war. And I also worry about the impact of cyber operations on nuclear command and control. Uh, that could uh, uh, unfortunately uh, cause uh, some bad decisions and an escalation to nuclear war. Absolutely, I think that is, um, when people talk about cyber, what's happening in the world right now is, is there are cyber attacks that are having physical effects. And I think back to the NotPetya attack um, in 2017, this was a situation where um, Russian supported agents um, hacked a software and accounting software in the Ukraine. It spread very quickly around the world to many different computers. It was not a ransomware attack. It was basically, if it infected your computer, it destroyed your computer and it affected Maersk shipping lines, basically shutting down their entire network of shipping. And it affected, I think, almost all of their computers except for one router in Africa um, was offline at the time because of a power outage. And so they swooped in to go get that to restore all the information of where all the shipping was going in order to restore their, their data. But what's fascinating about this is that um, there were lineups in the United States um, out of New Jersey at the, at the different ports in the US where they could not get their, their shipments. And so there were semi-trucks that were lined up. So we're so incredibly connected today that that attack that's not even targeted at affecting us is affecting us. So I think there's um, unfortunately a lot of um, scary scenarios um, to come in the, in the cyber realm. But I think one of the issues that I think is going through people's minds right now, well, this all sounds great, but how? We talked about 
the value of focus at NCB, Andy, and how having a focus on nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons was so important to have effects in those spaces, right? If we start to expand the mission set, people are always worried, how are we going to be focused on what, what matters? And so I think that is really the challenge that the Biden administration needs to face um, if they want to take this up. And I think we're going to save that um, as a conversation for next time. So I'll give you any final comments before we sign off. So Natasha, I think a great discussion today, and I think it just helps reinforce uh, that this is a complex problem. It's not going to get simpler, um, but it really does take all of us working together uh, to not only take our experiences and knowledge and lessons learned, but also take in the other perspectives and start to sort out how do we stitch together the seams uh, between these areas so that they actually all can work together. And I look forward to future conversations of you know, how do we make sure that we can do that um, and, it, and advise uh, the national security team that's trying to do this for the next uh, foreseeable future for the next several years to do it in a way that is actually impactful and prevents an event from happening. I agree. I mean, this, this is a, a really great discussion and, and it all comes down to in the end, you know, what is national security in 2021? What is the role of the Department of Defense in 2021? And we are a little bit stuck in, uh, in even the Cold War uh, retro uh, mentality. And if you just look at our investments, um, Joint Strike Fighters, aircraft carriers, we're fighting not just the last war, but the, the war before that and the one before that. Whereas um, we need to have that broader view of national security in the 21st century and the role of the Department of Defense. Thanks, Ron and Andy, for coming back on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.